electronic show still relevant? Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how's it going today? Hey, doing great, Deidre. How about you? Doing well. You know, I'm I'm sort of in my feelings a little bit because uh, it's <laughs> CES week. And this used to be like, this used to be the week. I used to work for a sister blog to Engadget when Engadget was the thing. And this was, oh, yeah. this was the week. <laughs> it feels a little more lively now than it used in the last few years. But do you think... Is CES back and, and is has AI made CES relevant again? I, well, I mean, I definitely, it, it feels like it's back from, yeah, the last several years. It's just not really been front and center. I mean, there obviously been a lot going on over the last, over the last few years. But, I, you know, I, I think it's also, I mean, there, there hasn't been a ton in the tech world that has just been keeping us on the edge of our seats. Sorry, Metaverse. It's not me. It's you. Uh, it, it, you just aren't quite as special, maybe, as, as we were hoping you would be. At least not yet. Now, now maybe maybe we'll find some some better use case forces uh, use cases for you for you down the road. But I think AI has has taken over sort of that role, right? As being that that narrative, that headline, that really uh, that one thing that everybody's really focused on. Um, and that's neat because the, the thing about AI. Is because we're in such early stages with it. You know, we're really just starting to learn about the implications, the ways that it can impact our lives. Right? I think a lot of what AI is going to do, it's probably not going to be stuff that's front and center and in our face, but it's going to kind of be the stuff that's helping behind the scenes to make our lives better and easier and whatnot. But but yeah, certainly feels like CES is is a little bit more back than it has been recently. Well, thinking about AI and everybody trying to put AI in everything, uh, Volkswagen announced that it's sell, uh, putting ChatGPT in cars. And this is interesting because, I mean, right now, I don't really want ChatGPT in my car, <laughs> but it's sort of like a, a down-the-road thing. So they, they sort of talked about how they want it to be this sort of like ongoing conversation that you might be having with with AI in your car you know who knows where this will go it, it might start with directions it might lead to things like like breaking news updates or things like that or where should I go for lunch so I don't know do you want chat GPT in your car I it's it's really funny I mean I, I I wonder what what are people doing when they're driving that insists on on having all of this stuff at your fingertips, right? I mean, I'm I'm kind of focused on the road, making sure I'm getting to where I want to go, and I either have a podcast or some music going, and that's usually about it. I mean, cars have done a really good job of incorporating a lot of technology uh, into them. I mean, we we've said for a while now they're really just becoming computers on wheels. Uh, that's no more true than today, I think. But but it, it clearly as we move into sort of this Internet of Things and everything becomes more connected. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's obvious real estate for these technology companies, right? I mean, finding sort of the solutions that make the most sense for consumers. Entertainment, uh, navigation, those are two really um, obvious opportunities. You see big chip makers that continue to make investments in the space. I mean, you got AMD, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, and more uh, continuing to, to really get their technology in these cars. And then you got little, you got smaller companies like Serence, for example, which used to be a part of Nuance. Then they split off from Nuance. Microsoft acquired Nuance. Serence is on its own now. And Serence is bringing their voice technology into the car. Uh, again, focused on sort of that intuitive 
intuitive AI assistant, sort of chat GPT-like. But again, focus really on entertainment, navigation, things like that. So, I, I think it's something that probably will develop a little bit more slowly than people might anticipate. But, but the first step really is getting the technology into the cars, and then learning where it can be most useful. And, and, and I think we're kind of in the middle of really discovering that, which is exciting. Well, you mentioned the metaverse earlier. You you, you kind of made a little face. Uh, you can't see it on <laughs> through the through the earring, but it, it, it was there. It was a face. I was so, having fun. <laughs> yes, but so we've got the Vision Pro coming out, and uh, yeah. we've got some some now we've got some dates here. January nineteenth, you can pre order. It's going to be released on on the second. We'll we'll see if people are lining up outside the stores. Is this going to be big? Are are you going to be lining up? What's what do you think? Well, so I, I definitely personally will not be lining up. I I, I think um, we will, we will absolutely see plenty of Apple fanatics creating a lot of buzz about it. I think that's exciting. And you know, I mean, this is this is really Apple's first step in this spatial computing paradigm, really, at least first meaningful step. And it's very easy to get excited about it because it's Apple. And usually when Apple does something, you know, they're going into it with plenty of research to, to, to really justify the opportunity, right? I mean, I don't think they would have gone into this willy-nilly. I mean, this is something they've probably seen a lot of the competition around them. And, and yeah, I made a little joke about the metaverse earlier, and that that really is is something where I'm sure the metaverse is going to come up with more and more applications for consumers as time goes on. Again, something that probably just develops a little bit more slowly. Uh, but to that point, I, I think that is one of the important points to note with Apple and the Vision Pro. I mean, this is really just their first step. I think what this leads to is more discovery on their part into how they can improve this technology, but even more so what this technology ultimately can do, right? And, and I think that's what Apple and Meta and all of these headset companies are really trying to figure out, okay, we've got this technology out now, now what can it do? And it has to be that way, right? I mean, you need to get the technology out there and start experimenting with it and trying it out in different in different areas uh, in order to get an idea of really where it's most useful and where it can be most helpful. And, and that just is going to take some time to develop, right? I mean, I, I don't know that that's something we should expect uh, something in the next couple of years where all of a sudden now the metaverse is just mainstream because of this, this Killer app that's been discovered. I mean, I, I think they're going to discover some some quote unquote killer apps, but I think it's something that's going to take some time. And I think this is something where we're going to see Apple using this sort of high end device to then help them sort of build more more compelling lower end devices that ultimately will be able to reach out to the consumer. I mean, I, I do continue to believe that these headsets. The biggest the biggest hurdle for these headsets is the form factor. Uh, I mean, it, it just anybody's worn one of these headsets. I mean, it's just not just Vision Pro. I mean, it's any of them. I mean, these headsets are just cumbersome, heavy, and uncomfortable, and you don't want to wear them for very long. But this is the step in kind of getting getting to where they ultimately need need to go, where where they can go. Um, that will that will take some time, and and I think that once they can really crack the code on that form factor, I think that'll open a lot of things up. But it, it's neat to see them making making progress in the space for sure. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of it starts with a device and it ends with an ecosystem, and exactly. we're we're just at that we're just at that point in thinking about where the where the iPhone was when it launched, and I wonder if this time Apple is going to have a little bit of a different strategy in terms of how quickly it you know it it lets other people play in its playground. You know, it's it's a different it's a different Apple since when when the iPhone first launched. So, do you think that there are some companies that that might benefit from from this in the VR space or will there be some more that emerge? 
Well, definitely. I mean, and I think one of one of the things we've talked about with this Vision Pro is this is this initial iteration is going to be something I think more for professionals and developers in in order to kind of figure out those applications and those those quote unquote killer apps, so to speak. And so it's nice to see that Apple has allowed for that partnership ecosystem to begin, right? I mean, it's not something where they're just going it all going it all alone. I mean, they've they've got companies, you know, like Adobe, for example. I mean, working with with Apple to create experiences and sort of exploit this technology for its best use case scenarios. Um, and so I mean Adobe stands out as one that certainly could benefit down down the road. But I think I think there are going to be a plenty plenty of companies that that ultimately Apple will saddle up with in order to try to make this the most useful, productive and enjoyable experience as possible. So with with CES, we're, we're not we're not there walking the floor, but I've I've been watching the the press releases come out. Some of it, you know, I, I don't need an AI cat door, but some of the things that I find are interesting <laughs> is the the transparent screens. So LG has one; it's a transparent OLED screen. Uh, Samsung showed off this transparent micro LED screen. It's really, really beautiful. I mean, we don't have any details on pricing yet, but I wonder, like, do we want these transparent screens? Is this one of those things? Do you think is is a gimmick or the future of something really beautiful? Yeah, I don't know. That's that's a really good one because you know I, I looked at these examples and the technology, and, and you're right. On the one hand, it's amazing technology; it produces these crisp images, just beautiful screens, and it's almost like it's just a hologram, right? Which is neat. I mean, that that really is is a little bit of a look into into ultimately that that you know what the future could look like you know then the flip side is to that okay what is the core use case for these is it just another model of a tv is it just something i mean are we looking to put this in our living room or is there a, another use case that could go with it i mean i i i think there are plenty of use cases where it could apply and and maybe maybe the use cases for technology like this are a bit more apparent in the enterprise side of things I don't know. I think that that's something we will have to wait and see. I mean, I think cost is going to be something that matters, right? Uh, like you said, there's not a lot of information in regard to cost there. But I think one thing I did find in regard to Samsung, uh, these these non-transparent micro LED TVs that they have are running one hundred fifty thousand dollars for a one hundred ten inch model, and so it's it's not cheap, right? I mean, yeah. you look at that Vision Pro, and we talk about how cost prohibitive that could be. Clearly, this 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 technology, this screen technology, is going to be somewhat cost prohibitive for consumers, at least in the near term. But it's definitely a window into what could be. I guess the question is, you know, is this sort of the new form factor? Or is this the next 3D television? And and that that I think is the question we we just don't have an answer to yet. And and for those uh, not keeping score, the 3D television that 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 turned out to be kind of a flop. <laughs> 3D is one of my favorite things because it comes up every like 20 years or so. We get all excited about it, and then it goes away again. It's like 3D yeah. movies. It just it's just something that keeps coming up and keeps going away. Well, and that's you know, I mean that that it's that's similar to these headsets too, right? I mean, these headsets are bringing that more immersive technology, and on the one hand, it's amazing technology, but on the other hand, is it what people really want? And I, I just don't know. I mean, obviously, three D television was not something that people want. These headsets have done well to the extent that they've sold a number of them, but you know, an ongoing story is that they ultimately just turn into dust collectors, right? People get them, they use them for a few weeks. They don't really find them to be all that tremendously useful. 
And so then they just kind of sit in the corner and collect dust uh, because we really haven't discovered the core use case for why we need them yet, as opposed to maybe wanting them. Um, gaming always stands out as sort of that core use case for a lot of this technology. And so I could see technology like this making some waves in the gaming space for hardcore gamers looking for that the best experience possible. That doesn't really extend itself to, to the mass consumer. And, and, and so, again, that's kind of where time will tell. Star of the show so far, uh, Nvidia. You know they're not show. They're it's it's different because they're not. You know there's not like a TV you can look at, but they did come out with a whole bunch of announcements. Nvidia tends to do this where they just blitz you with a bunch of press <laughs> releases. But I think the thing that I thought was most interesting is the shot across the bow at AMD with newer, cheaper uh, GPUs. And so I feel like this is. This is an interesting battle. You know, I don't know as much about it as probably I'd, I'd like to, you know, more than I do. But how should we be thinking about the competition here with with NVIDIA saying, like, we can make we can make beautiful technology just as cheaply as you do? Well, yeah, it's it sounds like what NVIDIA is ultimately trying to do, or at least with this chip, this chip suite that they've rolled out, it, and a lot of it centers around AI, but it's ultimately trying to make that leap from AI going from behind the scenes and helping us in ways that we can't really see and helping businesses in ways we can't really see to bringing it front and center, going from server to local, right? And we see Microsoft trying to do the same thing, bringing that uh, co-pilot's key to the actual keyboard of a laptop. In this case, you've got NVIDIA trying to bring this AI technology to the consumer in the laptop or the desktop form and making it more accessible for us as consumers. I think that really is exciting because with all of the all of the talk about AI and we see the potential, right? I think it's 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 a lot easier to see the potential and how it can help at the enterprise level because those are big often inefficient sort of organizations that could benefit from streamlining and, and doing things more efficiently. But that doesn't really, that's not so sexy for the consumer, right? The consumer's asking, well, what about me? How does AI help me? And this is a step in that direction, right? Bringing AI more front and center directly in front of the consumer. Um, and, and so, you know, being on PC, being on desktop, I mean, ultimately being on mobile, I mean, that's what these companies are ultimately looking to do. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's exciting times. We're going to see, I think, plenty develop here at CES, um, and it's going to set the table, I think, for some exciting shows here in the future as well. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I'm going to pull us away from CES for a second, because there's a little bit of news I wanted to hit, uh, wanted your take on. Uh, you recently called out Jeff Lawson of Twilio as a uh, CEO on the hot seat. Well, the hot seat got really hot because he's <laughs> he's moving on. Uh, yeah. So he's a co-founder. He's leaving the board as well. You've got someone who's been at the company in a, for a long time taking the reins. How do you, we know, we know the activists aren't going to be happy about that? But how are you thinking about that move? Well, it, it, to me, it feels like it was something that was more or less inevitable. I mean, you're right. It, it, the, the the 2023 Molly Full Money preview show. Uh, one of the questions, like for the show, was who's a CEO on the hot seat, and I, I, I said Jeff Lawson to me was a CEO on the hot seat because you know he's in this position with Twilio where Twilio is a good business, has developed this tremendous suite of offerings, but now it really got to the point where they need to focus on making some actual money and in, in focusing on the core the core competencies of the business. Um, and, and it felt it, it just kind of felt to me along the way that, that Lawson is more of an entrepreneur, and maybe the company had hit that stage where he needed to step aside and let an operator you know, come in to maybe help take this business to the next level. Right? We see it often. I mean, we see it plenty of businesses from from small getting established 
established uh, companies like Marketa to to larger companies with with longer track records of success like Chipotle. Um, and, and so I think in this case it probably makes the most sense. I mean, there's clearly some activism in there that that might have might have uh, sort of prompted this uh, or, or at least hastened it. And, and, and it's not to say that Lawson won't have any say so in the matter. At least for now, I mean, he does still own. Uh, a good portion of the company. It does have that dual share class structure. So we'll see how that that ownership interest shakes out here over over the coming quarters and years. But but I I, I think ultimately this is probably a good thing for the company is it's going to give them a chance really to take that next step and become mainstream established pro profitable and, and really become the type of business that investors in, in Wall Street are ultimately looking for. Well we'll have to wait and see. Thanks for touring CES with me today, Jason. Thank you. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. a lot of stocks on the show, but it's just a peek at the Motley Fool's investing universe. This year, we're rolling out a new offering. It's called Epic Bundle. The service includes seven stock recommendations every month, model portfolios, and stock rankings, all based on your investor type. We're offering Epic Bundle to Motley Fool Money listeners at a reduced rate as a thanks for listening to the show. So for more information, head to www.fool.com slash epic198. We'll also include a link in the show notes for you. We're staying on the tech theme. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Kevin Simzer, the Chief Operating Officer of Trend Micro, to talk about cybersecurity in the cloud and the new threats facing electric cars. I know the company, you have more than 3,000 engineers basically protecting enterprises and people against cyber threats. It's been around for more than three decades. It's less discussed. I would say in the full universe, I'd say less discussed in general, in part because your company spends a little bit less on marketing than uh, than some of your competitors. Your company has a big focus on cloud security. You've been in that space for a while. Big focus on endpoint security or the connection between, let's say, the device you're using right now and those those big cloud servers that are storing everything. Uh, to, to the layperson, can you can you go through what's the offer for customers from Trend Micro, especially as those cloud providers have, uh, including Microsoft, have have their own security options? Thanks, Ricky, for the setup. And you know, 
Perhaps we should be well, more well known because it really is an American success story. Can you believe that it was founded, that we were founded over three decades ago in Los Angeles, California? Started as a startup in a garage, went on to become a multi-billion dollar cybersecurity giant uh, doing business across the globe. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm really proud of in terms of our the Trend Micro performance is Actually, our business is much, much more global than what many people think. Around 25% of our business comes from the Americas, 25% from Europe, 25% from the Middle East and Africa, Southeast Asia, and then 25% from Japan, uh, where we're formally headquartered. So much more resilient and global than many of the other cybersecurity providers. We have evolved substantially by building out a cybersecurity unified platform that we offer. You know, we do in all, all sorts of things up to and including cloud security, uh, like you pointed out. Cloud security is big globally, uh, but in particular in the US where uh, many, many people are adopting cloud and, and we're there to protect them. IDC actually have us as the number one cloud security company in the world. What are the kinds of like cloud security threats that you're defending against? What do those look like compared to maybe ones that enterprises experienced in the past? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In an enterprise, we all got pretty comfortable with an environment where we built these walls around our enterprises. And gradually those walls ended up with more and more holes through the walls because, you know, we needed to connect our supply chains and everything else up. In the cloud world, in particular, our largest partner, largest cloud service provider, which is AWS, they've adopted something called a shared security responsibility model, where AWS is responsible for protecting the infrastructure, but customers that adopt AWS need to think about the application itself. And that's where we come in. So it takes both AWS and ourselves in order to keep the adversaries out. Adversaries are sitting there watching, looking, learning, and trying to work their way into those critical applications now that are running in the cloud. So it's a big deal for many of our customers. One place I, I know you've been working on as well, or in a podcast last year, you said it was an area of focus is, is electric vehicles. Can you talk about your work in this in this space and sort of what electric vehicle companies, customers w would need to be mindful of in terms of cyber threats? Actually, the New York Times coined a uh, cybersecurity giant. So as a, as a cybersecurity giant, you end up having your hands in lots of different things. And uh, we have our uh, core business, like we talked about earlier, protecting everything from endpoints to email, cloud network, OOT environments. That's our core business. But because we're threat practitioners, we're cybersecurity practitioners, we also have a view of what else is going on in the industry. And uh, a couple of things that really intrigued us, one was around all things 5G, so security around 5G. Another one that interests us in a big way was security around the entire EV ecosystem, not just the cars, but the charging stations and whatnot. And uh, what we did to address that is we actually spun off 
wholly owned subsidiary companies. We own them, but we felt like actually the go-to-market was going to be substantially different. Some of the technology, the partners that we would need. And relative to EV, we created a subsidiary called Vic One, Vehicle One. And uh, that subsidiary is doing some really, really cool things, working with automotive manufacturers, working with charging manufacturers in order to build out a set of security capabilities that can be incorporated directly into their platforms. So we're sort of taking the burden of protecting EV cars and protecting EV charging stations from adversaries, from, you know, denial of service attacks or whatever it happens to be, um, we build an offering and we make that available to the automotive industry. Uh, so that's an exciting space for us. Gosh, we've got a hundred people working on that now. So it's a substantial investment that we have going into that. We all know that EV cars are the future and uh, we're going to be there to stop the bad guys. Yeah, so a denial of service attack, basically, you can, you can see that when a website just goes down, shuts down seems like that would be a different issue for, or I just, it would be a terrible issue for a car and something to be expected. When you're talking to your team at Vic One, what, like, with with these kinds of threats, I, I imagine they're facing a ton. You have the denial of service attack. You also have um, these car manufacturers, which I have personal opinion on, but they're, they're doing a lot of, um, like, subscription as a service offering. So BMW got famous or became a little infamous for charging people for heated seats. And then you have a lot of uh, packers trying to essentially jailbreak features within their car. I can't imagine that there's a lot of other issues that, that they're defending against. What do you think is issue number one for, for the Vic One team about questions for, for cybersecurity, for, for the charging infrastructure in, in, in the cars? And is it a lot different from what you are traditionally doing? Well, one of the things that people need to think about, and we had to think a lot about, is all of those threats. And and we thought about it ourselves, but we also are the um, owners and sponsors of something called Pwn to Own. And in Japan, uh, early next year, we'll, we will be hosting the very first Pwn to Own conference where we will be soliciting researchers. We have around 3,000 independent researchers around the globe whose job it is is to we pay them to find vulnerabilities in areas that we find could be interesting from a threat adversary standpoint and in this case we're paying them to look at the overall ev automotive ecosystem so they'll be finding vulnerabilities and writing exploits in order to try and that gives us a lot of insight as to what the threat actors are going to be up to. So that's actually quite helpful in terms of uh, providing that level of insight. And uh, for us, we can incorporate all that technology into our offering and make that available to the automotive manufacturers. So uh, w you know, we see it as a, a really tight um, grouping of, of uh, smart people coming together in order to try and keep the, um, the threat actors at bay. The number one thing that people should be aware of is what uh, with an EV car is the over-the-air software updates. That, 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 that notion of updating software over the air, receiving updates over the air, it creates um, an inroad into the car. And that's one of the number one areas that uh, 
that could potentially be exploited. So you could imagine, you know, if a software update were ever hijacked and uh, modified, uh, and it, it could do catastrophic things. So trying to to make sure that that doesn't happen is what we're we're fiercely focused on. And as we wrap up, we can focus back in on the company of, of Trend Micro. You guys have had fairly a uh, good quarter that the market seems to be celebrating. Any any things going on with the business that you would want investors listening to Motley Fool Money to be aware of? Yeah, I think there is, Ricky. Um, you know, we we publicly announced in January of 2020 uh, business transformation. We were going to move towards this consolidated platform, and we were going to start investing heavily in it. And uh, what we saw over the last few years is we saw the success of that platform start to build and grow. We, we're seeing, you know, we're now up to 9,000 plus customers running on it, uh, $750 million plus in annual recurring revenue. So we're seeing phenomenal growth happen in it. And uh, it culminated in our Q3 results, like you pointed out. You know, our Q3 results were very, very strong, up 13% year over year. We surprised on the positive side up 13% year over year on the top line, up 58% on the bottom line, 30% increase in cash flow. So, you know, truly our investors celebrated the performance. And what we did was we took that and we wrapped it in, well, uh, you know, we're sitting on two and a half billion dollars in cash. What could we do to reward shareholders even more? So we introduced a special dividend and a large cash share buyback so we were uh really really thinking that you know let's let's reward shareholders for some of our performance uh, positive performance here and as we go into 2024 and 2027 we see the business scaling even more we see the top line growth continuing and we see even more bottom line performance so we actually made the declaration that 100 percent of our net income we will be giving back to shareholders for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we're really feeling like we're financially sound. The ideology of our chairman, I'll leave you with this, of our chairman, he's the founder and chairman of the company, and he, he, he really pushes sustainable, superior performance. And we've been around for over three decades. We want to be around for another three decades. So, you know, you need to build a sustainable, superior performing business in order to do that. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.